0: Precious Lamb, whose blood was shed for me. Let's open our Bibles now to the Gospel of Luke. And we read of that Lamb whose blood was shed for us. Luke 23, beginning at verse 33. Let us hear the word of our God. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. They divided his garments and cast lots, and the people stood looking on, But even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other, answering, rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me, when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him assuredly I say to you today you will be with me in paradise. Now it was about the sixth hour and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And When Jesus had cried out with a loud voice he said, Father into your hands I commit my spirit Having said this, he breathed his last. So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. And the whole crowd who came together to that site, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts and returned. But all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Things. So far, the reading of God's holy word. A pastor was on a plane to Cleveland when he noticed that a woman across the aisle from him was wearing a necklace with a cross. Hoping to generate discussion, he said to her, We really do have a wonderful Savior, don't we? Surprised at his comment, she rolled her eyes upward and responded, Well, I don't think I understand the cross like you do. Look at this, she said. She held a small cross in her hand and showed him that beneath it was a Jewish star of David, and next to it was a trinket that symbolized a Hindu god. She said to him, I'm in social work. The people I work with find God in different ways. Christianity is just one of the paths to the divine. Brothers and sisters, what that pastor encountered on his flight to Cleveland is a notion that is more common that, than many of us might realize. Today, the cross is sometimes worn as a pennant by athletes, New Agers, as well as rock stars. For many of these people, the cross is merely a symbol of unity, tolerance, love, and spirituality of every kind. It symbolizes one of the paths to the divine or some sort of connectedness to the divine. If these people knew what the Bible says about the message of the cross, many of them would be deeply offended. The Apostle Paul said to the Corinthians, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, for Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. Unbelieving athletes, New Agers, and rock stars might wear a cross as a symbol of tolerance and spirituality, but if they were to learn what Scripture says about the cross, many of them would be turned off and have little use for it. In Galatians 5.11, the Apostle Paul spoke of what? The offense of the cross. The offense of the cross. Why is the message of the cross offensive to the unregenerate? Because the cross declares that we can do nothing to make ourselves right with God. It is a supreme offense to works righteousness. The message of the cross is that mankind is corrupt and hopelessly lost in sin. We are utterly incapable of bringing about our own reconciliation. The message of the cross is that we are guilty and worthy of death and hell. And no matter what we do, we cannot atone for our sins. The message of the cross is offensive to the unregenerate because it shatters all pride and discards all self-effort. The cross reveals our spiritual ugliness. In his helpful commentary on Galatians, Phil Rikens said this, To preach the cross is to preach salvation in Christ alone. It is to preach that only his sacrificial death is sufficient to atone for sin. It is to preach salvation by his infinite worth rather than by our unworthy merits. There is nothing we can do to make things right with God. But God has made things right with us through the bloody death of his son. A few paragraphs later, he went on to write The problem with peach, preaching the cross is that it is a way of offending people. It is offensive because it is so unflattering. People hate to be told that they need to go to the cross. What they see when they get there is Jesus of Nazareth hanging as a naked and bloody sacrifice. What that says about them is that they are sinners who need a Savior. The cross offends people because they do not want to admit that they need someone else to save them. The offense of the cross. But brothers and sisters, while the message of the cross is offensive to the unregenerate, to those who have had their eyes opened by the Spirit of God, the cross not only reveals the depth of our sin, but also the amazing love of God towards sinners. For the believer, the supreme message of Calvary is the pardoning love of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The cross is an expression of love that passes understanding. It reveals God's love as nothing else does. God's love is an utterly gracious commitment to the totally unworthy. That is what we see at Calvary. This morning I would like us to ponder the pardoning love of God that we find in Jesus' first cry from the cross. People are often fascinated with the last words of great men. But there are no last words as important as those of Jesus on the cross. Scripture reveals only seven brief sayings. Each one reveals something wonderful about him. The seven sayings from the cross are these. Number one, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Number two, spoken to the thief on the cross, assuredly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Number three, spoken to his mother and the apostle John, woman, behold your son, behold your mother. Number four, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Number five, I thirst. Number six, it is finished. And number seven, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. This morning I draw your attention to the first of the seven words of the Savior. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Consider, first of all, the wonder of his prayer. Second, the implication of his prayer. And third, the answer to his prayer. First, the wonder. The wonder. Our Lord had been betrayed and arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. In the courtyard of the high priest, he was mocked and beaten. All this happened on Thursday night. They declared that he was guilty of blasphemy for confessing that he was indeed the Christ, the Son of God. Then on Friday morning he was bound and led away to Pontius Pilate. Although Pilate declared him innocent, he still handed him over to the crowd to be crucified. He commanded his soldiers to flog Jesus, a punishment so terrible that many prisoners even died. After he was scourged, he was made sport of by the Roman soldiers who guarded him as he awaited the crucifixion. They threw a scarlet robe over his bleeding back, and they loudly mocked his kingly authority. A crown of thorns was pressed into his head, so that blood soaked his matted hair. They put a reed into his right hand, which represented what? A scepter. They bowed before him mockingly. Then they took the reed out of his hand and struck him on the head, pressing the thorns deeper into his flesh. They spoke to him in jeering tones. What a great king you are, you who are smitten on the head with your own scepter. Then when they had finished their amusing game, they took off the robe and led him out to crucify him. When we come to our text, Luke 23, verse 34, Jesus had had just been stripped of his garments, placed on the cross, fastened to it with nails through his hands, and hung up for public display. A medical doctor who wrote a paper on the physical aspects of Jesus' suffering said this, Excruciating pain like millions of hot needles shocked the nervous system. Hanging from the cross with nails through his hands, he experienced the most unbearable pain a man can experience. Each movement of the body revived this horrible pain. That from a medical doctor. Now congregation, think about this for a moment. What would be the expected response of someone who is wrongly convicted, wrongly punished, and wrongly sentenced to a, a painful and humiliating death? Many people in such a state would curse their enemies. Many would cry out angrily at the injustice of it all. Many would lash out verbally with hatred in their hearts or moan with self-pity. What do we see in our Lord Jesus? Do we see anger? Do we see bitterness, resentment, hatred, desire for revenge? No, brothers and sisters, while he was being mocked and jeered, Jesus responded in precisely the opposite way most people would have. Instead of cursing his enemies, he prayed to God on their behalf. While he was the victim of history's greatest crime, he prayed for his executioners. One old writer said this, As soon as the blood of the great sacrifice began to flow, the great high priest began to intercede. As soon as the blood of the great sacrifice began to flow, the great high priest began to intercede. In the words of our text, we have an amazing demonstration of love. In the midst of unbearable pain, Jesus served as mediator between God and sinful man. His mediatorial role had been predicted by whom? By the prophet Isaiah. Did you pick that up as we read from the 53rd chapter of the prophecy of Isaiah? How did that chapter end? And he bore the sin of many and made what? And he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. 700 years before the birth of Jesus, the prophet Isaiah declared that the Messiah would pray for sinners. As Jesus said, Father, forgive them. He was fulfilling Old Testament prophecy which spoke of his priestly intercession. Any mortal man would desire to curse his killers under these circumstances. But Jesus, as he was close to the depth of his agony, as he was approaching the depths of his agony, he was filled with love. What a faithful and compassionate high priest. These people around the cross deserved a thunderous blast of judgment from the heavens. They deserved to have fire fall upon them, sending them into eternal condemnation. But instead of cursing them, our Lord Jesus was deeply concerned about their souls. He was troubled about their eternity. And in this moment of intense anguish, he prayed for his murderers. Dear friends, such love passes understanding. In this incredible moment, we see the love of the high priest for his people. Jesus was burdened for those who were committing history's greatest crime. And he wanted his Father to forgive them. He knew that the only way the Father could answer his prayer was if he would drink the cup of suffering to the very end. Jesus had the power to come down from the cross. He could have ended his suffering in a split second. He had the power, but he knew that his prayer could not be answered unless he persevered till the end. On the cross, Jesus became legally guilty. He carried upon his shoulders all the sins of his people, and on the cross, he bore the punishment so that this prayer could be answered, Father, forgive them. Jesus had to suffer not just physical pain. As horrible as the physical pain may have been, the suffering of Jesus was not primarily physical. The ultimate suffering was endured when his fellowship with the Father was severed for those three hours of darkness on the cross. He was willing to be forsaken so that his murderers would not be forsaken. He was willing to endure hell so that vile criminals might enjoy heaven. He was willing to be cursed so that those who mocked him could be blessed. His cry from the cross reveals the deep longing of his heart. Brothers and sisters, this prayer of Jesus from the cross should be a a great encouragement to each one of us this morning. If he prayed for the pardon of those who spit at him, then is there not also hope for you? Can you hear your own name in Jesus' petition? Can you hear in these dying words your mediator pleading for you? We can be assured that the one who interceded for criminals at Calvary continues to make intercession for his people today at the right hand of the Father. The writer to the, of the Epistle to the Hebrews said of Jesus, He ever lives to make intercession for us. Are you troubled by your sin this morning? When you examine your life, do you see sin upon sin upon sin? Are your mind and heart filled with greed, selfishness, lust, anger, covetousness, worldliness, or pride? Do you feel condemned by the hidden idols of your heart? Be encouraged by the love revealed in Jesus' prayer. He is a compassionate and gracious high priest. If he prayed for his murderers from the cross, then you too can find forgiveness through your great high priest. Now, people of God, as Jesus saw and heard his murderers jeering at him from below the cross, he knew that his enemies were ignorant of the enormity of their crime. His prayer was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, maybe you're thinking to yourself, surely they knew that they were sinning. They knew that they were executing an innocent man. Both the Jews and the Romans knew that Pilate himself had testified of Jesus' innocence. The Sanhedrin was fully aware that no legitimate charges had been brought against him. The Roman soldiers could also easily see that a great injustice was being done. Furthermore, Many of the spectators had heard Jesus' teaching and had either heard about or seen his miracles. They all knew that he did not deserve to die. In that sense, they were not ignorant at all of what they were doing. The Sanhedrin knew that they had bribed false witnesses and they knew that they had condemned a righteous man. But brothers and sisters, they were ignorant of the enormity of their crime. When Jesus said, they know not what they do, he meant that they did not know they were crucifying the Son of God. The Apostle Paul confirmed this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8, when he said, Had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They all knew that their actions were evil, but they did not comprehend the extent of their crime. In Acts 3, verse 17, the apostle Peter said, You killed the prince of life, yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance. I know that you did it in ignorance. congregation, when someone commits a crime in ignorance, he's still guilty, right? If you get pulled over for speeding while traveling down an unfamiliar road and you say to the police officer, sir, I was not aware that the speed limit was only 60, he still has a right to give you a ticket. Your ignorance does not make you innocent in the eyes of the law. It does not absolve your guilt. However, when you read the Old Testament, you discover that sins of ignorance were distinguished from sins of knowledge. For example, in Leviticus 5:15, the Lord said, If a person commits a trespass and sins unintentionally, he shall bring to the Lord, as his trespass offering, a ram without blemish. Sins of ignorance needed a sacrifice, but they were not as serious as sins of knowledge. That is willful, defiant rebellion. Numbers 15 verse 30 says, But anyone who sins defiantly blasphemes the Lord. That person must be cut off from his people. You see, the Old Testament distinguished between sins committed with knowledge and sins of ignorance. But those who committed sins of ignorance still need forgiveness. These people who surrounded the cross may have been ignorant of the enormity of their crime, but they still needed forgiveness. Sins committed in ignorance are still sins. Ignorance is no excuse in the presence of God. So Jesus, knowing their guilt, prayed, Father, Forgive them, an unfathomable petition of love. Now, brothers and sisters, before we go on to consider the answer to Jesus' prayer, I want us to reflect for just a moment upon the implications of his prayer. The implications of his prayer. Consider this question. If Jesus could pray for the forgiveness of those who cruelly and unjustly nailed him to the cross, are we prepared to pray for those who sin against us? Those who have wronged us? And are we prepared to love those who do not ask for forgiveness? I read two scenarios in which a person was quoted as saying, I will never forgive him. I will never forgive her. The one was the story of a man who was married for 10 years. They had two children, ages nine and six. He found out that his wife had had a a four-month-long affair with another man. The man said, I will never forgive my wife for what she did. Every day, there's not an hour that goes by without me thinking of what she did and how much she hurt me. I will never forgive my wife. The other story was of a woman who had been married for 19 years. They also had two children, ages 4 and 13. On Mother's Day, on Mother's Day, she discovered that her husband was leaving her for a woman he had met on the Internet. A few weeks earlier, she had learned that he had been talking to this woman online. And then she found a necklace that this woman had sent to her husband. She confronted her husband and asked, which was more important to him, his, his wedding band or that necklace? He said, the necklace. The woman said, I know I will never forgive him for allowing this to happen to our family. I know I will never forgive him for allowing this to happen to our family. Now, I don't in any way mean to lightly dismiss the terrible pain that those people endured. What they went through must have been utterly, utterly distressing, mind-numbing, and heartbreaking. I can hardly fathom anything more painful than for a person to be deceived and and rejected by the one they committed themselves to tell death to us part. The emotional pain would be absolutely crippling. But congregation, think about their statements in comparison to the prayer of Jesus from the cross. He prayed for those who did not ask for forgiveness. He interceded for those who pounded the nails through his hands, hands that had done no evil. He prayed, as it were, for an unfaithful, adulterous wife. There are some Christians who insist, I don't have to forgive those who have wronged me unless they repent. God doesn't forgive the unrepentant, why should I? But the answer we deduce from Scripture is that even when forgiveness is not requested, we must still grant it in the sense that we release our bitterness to God and commit our adversaries to Him. In Mark chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, forgiveness is commanded prior to any interaction with the person who has wronged you, prior to any repentance on the part of the offender. The offended party must still choose to forgive in the sense that the injustice is turned over to God. Forgive by surrendering the matter to God Of course, there will not be complete reconciliation until the person repents, but still, we are called to forgive by surrendering the matter to God. Consider the example of Stephen. Stephen, the first New Testament martyr, while he was being stoned, the rocks bruising, battering and lacerating his body, he prayed for his killers. Falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Incredible, isn't it? Astonishing. Like his master, Stephen was able to pray for his enemies. Like Jesus, he expressed love for those who wronged him. When the Holy Spirit dwells within us and empowers us, we are capable of showing concern for those who we would by nature hate and reject. When we say, I could never forgive that person, don't we reveal a lack of understanding and appreciation for the love expressed in Jesus' prayer from the cross. He was burdened for those who committed history's greatest crime. And so should we be burdened and concerned about the souls of those who sin against us? Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Congregation, let me ask you this morning. Is there someone who has wronged you, wounded you, and deeply hurt you? Is there someone who has dealt very unfairly with you, been cruel to you or cheated you, either someone in your family, your church, your workplace, or in the community? If you have received forgiveness for your own numerous crimes against God through the crucifixion and death of the sinless Jesus, then can you not love that person who has wronged you by praying earnestly for him or for her? Lord he has been blinded by the evil one his sin dominated heart has been controlled by the prince of darkness please give him eyes to see the greatness of his transgressions and the depth of your love give him a heart to turn from his spiritual rebellion to the life transforming grace of the gospel Take the hatred from his heart and fill him with your love and help me to reflect your compassionate mind and heart to him. When Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them. He was reaching out with tender mercy on behalf, uh, on behalf of the undeserving. People like you and me. He was showing kindness to those who deserve the opposite. Should we not strive by His grace, to do the same. Sometimes, sometimes there are controversies in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ which reveal, those controversies reveal that we who profess to be Christians are not always willing to show the compassion and grace of Jesus to one another. Should we not desire, by the power of the Spirit, to do as He did, and to pray as he prayed. Then finally, in our brief time remaining, I want you to notice the answer to his prayer, which is point number three. Was the prayer of verse 34 answered? Were there those who were forgiven by God the Father through the intercession of our high priest and mediator Jesus Christ? Look with me, please, to Luke 23, verse 46. Luke 23, and verse 46. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Verse 47. So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God saying, certainly this was a righteous man, or certainly this man was innocent. The centurion's confession that Jesus was an innocent and righteous man was perhaps directly tied to Jesus' prayer for forgiveness. It is possible that this Roman centurion was among the first to be forgiven as a result of Jesus' prayer. However, I believe we have an even clearer answer to Jesus' prayer in the book of Acts. On the day of Pentecost, Peter proclaimed the gospel in Jerusalem and accused the multitude of having taken the Lord Jesus by lawless hands, crucified Him, and put Him to death. Many people were convicted, and the number of those who were converted was 3,000. Many of them were the same people who had demanded that Jesus be put to death. Father, Father, Forgive them, said Jesus, and the Father forgave. In Matthew 27, verse 25, prior to the crucifixion, when Pilate handed Jesus over, he said to the people, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. Do you remember the response of the people? They said, His blood be on us and... On our children the people accepted full responsibility for his death and unknowingly pronounced a curse upon themselves and their children but to those who repented on the day of Pentecost what did Peter say many were cut to the heart by his sermon and said men and brethren what shall we do then Peter said to them repent And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then what did Peter say after that? For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off. Before the crucifixion they said, His blood be on us and our children. And they clamored for Jesus' death. But on the day of Pentecost, Many of them repented and Peter said to them, the promise is to you and to your children. The prayer of Jesus from the cross was heard by the Father and 3,000 people were converted. And the curse that they had unknowingly pronounced upon themselves and their children in the presence of Pilate was graciously lifted. Moreover, Shortly after that, we read in Acts 4 that another 5,000 were converted. Also, congregation, listen to these words from Acts 6, verse 7. And the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. You hear that? A great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Father, forgive them, said Jesus. And the Father forgave. He answered the petition of His beloved Son. Not everyone connected with the crucifixion was forgiven. There were undoubtedly those who perished in sin. But all of God's chosen ones were forgiven as the Father responded to the intercessory prayer of the great high priest, Jesus Christ. You see, congregation, he bore their punishment. He bore their punishment. The Father heard his prayer because Jesus bore the wrath of God in the place of his people. As a result, a great number of the temple priests confessed Jesus as Lord. It was a direct answer to Jesus' prayer. Consider, dear friends, the pardoning love of the Father and the Son. The sin of the people was unfathomably heinous. They personally participated in the murder of the sinless Lord of glory. Yet God the Father lovingly pardoned them through the intercession of his dear Son. And people of God, the total number of those who were forgiven through the prayer of Jesus will never be known until the day the books are opened. How many were converted in Jerusalem as a direct result of this moving petition? How many owed their conversion to this very prayer? In John 11 Verse 42, Jesus said, Father, I know that you always hear me. Father, I know that you always hear me. The father heard the prayers of his beloved son, and he was always pleased to give him his petitions. Congregation, the one who prayed for his murderers on the cross is alive today. And he continues to make intercession for all who come to him. He is willing and able to pardon each one of you as you turn to him in faith. Come to him. Trust him. Our hearts are such that had we been there at Calvary, we too may have demanded his death. We too may have spat in his face and struck him on the head. We too may have joined the soldiers mocking his kingship. But through the great high priest, our mediator, Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. Jesus says today, Father, forgive them, and we are forgiven. He who himself needed no forgiveness died to secure ours. Our just punishment is hell but through the pardoning love of the Father and the Son and the work of the Holy Spirit applying it to our hearts, we are granted free access to the kingdom of heaven. One author said, The cross is the bridge of redeeming love. On it, we walk across the chasm to God, who graciously provided forgiveness for those who believe. The cross is the bridge of redeeming love. On it, we walk across the chasm to God who graciously provided forgiveness for those who believe. If you are forgiven, thank the Lord for that great, pardoning love. And show your gratitude by blessing those who curse you, returning good for evil, and by praying for those who have sinned against you. Follow the example of your high priest by praying for sinners. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In December of 1997, a 15-year-old Christian girl was shot in her school by a 14-year-old student. As she lay in the hospital less than a week after the shooting, fully aware that the damage to her spinal cord was so severe that she would be a paraplegic for the rest of her life, she sent a message of concern and compassion through a friend to the boy who had deliberately shot her. No hatred, no bitterness, no retaliation, only compassion. Congregation, that is well nigh an impossible response unless we know the pardoning love of God. Do you know that love? Do you know that love? Father, forgive them. Let us pray. Lord, how we praise you and thank you this morning for our great high priest, the one who was both the offering and the offerer, the one who made intercession for the transgressors. We are transgressors. We stand condemned because of our defiance against you. And yet, Lord, because of the work of our great high priest, we can be completely, totally forgiven. Sins of ignorance can be forgiven. And sins of defiance can be forgiven. We look to the lamb that was slain this morning. And as we come to this table, Lord, may it be impressed upon our hearts what a privilege it is to approach you, to commune with you. And may we be those, Lord, as we take of the bread and of the cup, may we be those who forgive those who have sinned against us, forgiving insofar as we cast our burden upon you that we roll all our bitterness upon you. And we pray for those who have wounded us. Receive our praises and our thanks through the lamb that was slain. If there are those, Lord, this morning who are struggling with various sins, struggling with brokenness, May they be encouraged by this prayer of our high priest. Father, forgive them. And if there are any here today who remain unrepentant and unforgiven, will you in your grace come to them, convict them of their need, and show them the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ where our sins were paid for. Hear us, Lord, in his precious name. Amen.